You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The Dutch financial sector recovers from a DDoS wave, which could be the work of anyone from teenage skids to some nation's intelligence service. Lizard Squad may have a connection to Mirai. The reptiles are also getting in the coin mining business. Patient phishing relieves IOTA cryptocurrency users of the contents of their wallets. UK's Snoopers Charter is smacked down by High Court. The U.S. House Intelligence Committee votes to release a classified memo on surveillance. And U.S. military personnel get an OPSEC lesson on Strava. I'm Dave Bittner from Scenic Maple Lawn, Maryland, just outside of Baltimore, with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, January 30th, 2018. The CoinCheck hack is looking costly for the exchange that was victimized late last week. The exchange has pledged to repay about 90% of the funds people lost when NEM coins were looted from hot wallets. The amount to be repaid is thought to amount to some $425 million of the estimated $530 million stolen. This looks to us like 80%, but every news source covering the story calls it 90%, so we assume either the estimated losses are lower or the estimated repayments are higher. In any case, $435 million is a lot. Japan's Financial Services Agency, FSA, has ordered CoinCheck to improve its cybersecurity. The exchange is still in operation. The trading it suspended Friday did not include Bitcoin trades. So the security upgrades have a serious purpose. They're not likely to be cheap either. The incident is prompting regulators worldwide to consider tighter control over cryptocurrencies and speculation therein. Over the weekend and continuing through yesterday, the Dutch financial sector was subjected to a serious round of distributed denial-of-service attacks. The Dutch Revenue Service and several of the country's major banks were affected. ING, the Netherlands' largest bank, was hit Sunday evening. The country's third-largest lender, ABN AMRO, sustained three attacks over the weekend, augmenting the four others it had sustained over the past week. Rabobank, the second-largest Dutch lender, underwent an attack that began Monday morning. All three banks are in the process of recovering normal operations, and that recovery seems now substantially complete. Customers would have noticed problems with website availability. There's no evidence any systems were breached or data lost. Also targeted with a denial-of-service attack was the Dutch Revenue Service, whose website went down for a relatively brief 10 minutes. The Netherlands Ministry of Justice and Security said the attacks were very advanced, but that the banks showed a reassuringly high degree of defensive preparation. There's no attribution or suspected motive in the attacks, the Ministry of Justice and Security said. But researchers at security firm ESET say they observed that the command and control servers for the botnets used in the attacks were for the most part located in Russia. That doesn't say much about motive. 
As ESET points out, the attackers could have been anyone from bored teenagers in it for the lulls to a state security apparatus, either sending a message or engaging in misdirection. And speaking of skids in it for the lulls, teenaged or otherwise, the Internet of Things security company Zingbox has released a report on the Lizard Squad that connects it to the Mirai botnet. The researchers conclude that there's a connection, after all, between the Mirai botnet and the notorious, and for the most part incarcerated, skids at Lizard Squad, well known for their attacks on gaming systems like PlayStation and Xbox Live, as well as for their Lizard Stressor distributed denial of service service, Zingbox found four distinct activities that link Lizard Squad with Mirai. First, Mirai's source code was publicly released nine days after the arrest of Lizard Squad founder Zachary Bukta. Second, the Ukrainian hosting provider BlazingFast was used by both the authors of Mirai and by the Lizard Squad parasites of the Big Bot Pine group. Third, the authors of Mirai engaged in a distributed denial-of-service attack against security blogger Brian Krebs, shortly after he criticized Lizard Squad, saying, I hope it's clear to the media that the Lizard Squad is not some sophisticated hacker group. This apparently stung. Fourth, there are references to Mirai on a Lizard Squad website hosted at a site whose URL we won't read here because it's slightly more than half composed of vulgarities. This is, to be sure, circumstantial, but it's interesting. Also interesting are signs that the Lizard Squad members who remain at large have expanded their interests from renting out stressors for DDoS as a service into the trendier crimes of Monero and Ethereum mining. Michael Simon is president and CEO of Kryptonite, a company that focuses on proactive network defense. They recently released their 2018 healthcare cyber report, and Michael Simon joins us to share their findings. We're in the business of protecting critical vulnerability use cases. And healthcare is sort of that perfect storm of connection of those those use cases. And that's what prompted us to do this. So take us through what were some of the key findings from the report. There's sort of two directions of the key findings. One is there's been a pretty dramatic increase in the number of ransomware attacks. And second, actually the, the number of records uh, reported to have stolen has decreased. These are healthcare records. Um, you know, it's an interesting sort of dichotomy, if you will. We believe that one of the reasons that the records have decreased is because now attackers are are really going to widen their attack vectors to more and more facilities. Some of them might not have as many records, and they're also seeing that they can get more money out of a ransomware attack than actually stealing a record itself. Oh, that's interesting because we often hear that uh, you know, a healthcare record in particular is more valuable than, say, a credit card number, something like that. Yeah, it is, and it still is. But you know, if you look back into you know, 2012 timeframe, a healthcare record uh, would get somewhere in the neighbor of $50 on the, on the dark web. Today, you know, you're down to uh, numbers that could be a dollar or 50 cents. And it isn't because they aren't valuable. It's there's so many out there. Now, let's revisit uh, what you said about the ransomware, because, you know, it's uh, I guess the common advice from law enforcement is don't pay the ransomware. But yet it seems to me like particularly when it comes to health care, we've seen several incidences where people have paid the ransom, um, I guess, to get systems uh, up and running in a timely manner. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, we don't know who pays the ransomware or not um, publicly, 
because um, according to the rules of how they have to report these attacks, um, they're simply reporting what records have been uh, potentially accessed and what attacks have been, um, you know, have occurred. But they're not obligated to say whether they paid the ransomware attack. So we can only speculate whether organizations have paid them or not. From a, a healthcare or hospital facilities perspective, all they care about is patient care. If a ransomware attack is potentially impacting the care of a patient, uh, I'm guessing they're going to pay that fee pretty quickly. The concern, though, is there's nothing to stop that attacker from doing the same thing the next month, the next year, because uh, they have the information to do it. So what's your perception on where these healthcare systems are in terms of properly protecting themselves? Are they catching up? Are they getting ahead of the game? I think to answer that question, you have to take a look at these organizations first and see why I use the term perfect storm. Healthcare organizations in general uh, weren't built around an IT infrastructure. So they were, they were built around how to, ta- how to care best for the patient. So IT and OT, operational technology and information technology, were sort of separate. And there's not nearly as many IT professionals in the healthcare world as you'll find in the finance world, for example. Um, so the healthcare organizations are desperately trying to beef up their resources in the IT side. Some are doing a lot better than others. Others are not really doing very much at all. And then you have the situation of medical devices, um, what I call IOMT. Other people use the same term, Internet of Medical uh, Things. These are devices designed for patient care that really had no concept of security built in. So you take the idea of not a lot of IT resources, these, these medical IoT devices, And that really becomes the perfect storm for an attacker. So I think what's happening is these healthcare organizations are desperately trying to catch up, but they're still the perfect storm of opportunity for hackers. That's Michael Simon from Kryptonite. Users of IOTA cryptocurrency were successfully robbed of some $4 million by an unusually patient criminal who set up a malicious seed site that assigned users predictable seeds an 81-character seed necessary to create a wallet. Once this was done, the criminal, Norbert Vdberg, fished to land users on his site. On January 19th, Norbert Vdberg used the logs he'd accumulated over six months of operation to empty the user's IOTA wallets. His site is now closed, and he is on the lam. It's worth noting that a DDoS attack on IOTA network nodes occurred at the time Norbert Vdberg was looting the wallets. The attack seems to have been misdirection, a common use of DDoS. In a setback for HM government, the High Court in London ruled the Snoopers Charter unlawful. The surveillance law had been challenged in court by a Labour MP. It had been enacted during Prime Minister May's tenure as Home Secretary. The U.S. House Intelligence Committee has voted to release its presently highly classified memo on alleged surveillance abuses. It is thought that both the majority staff-prepared memo and its minority counterpart will be made public. And finally, we return to the curious case of Strava, the fitness app whose aggregated and anonymized heat map shows stuff like someone riding a bicycle around the runway at Groom Lake, Nevada, and troops running for exercise at various U.S. bases around the world. White House Cybersecurity Coordinator Rob Joyce says, quote, 
it's really clear that the heat map is a security risk, end quote, and that the administration is thinking through what to do about it. As we thought when we spoke about this incident yesterday, a number of service members are receiving some Strava-related OPSEC guidance. A Defense Department representative said, quote, Secretary Mattis has been very clear about not highlighting our capabilities to aid the enemy or give the enemy any advantage. The Secretary is aware of the breach, and we are taking a look at our department-wide policies to determine if they need to be updated, end quote. We imagine Secretary Mattis expressed himself rather more vividly in his communication with the chain of command. And we say again to the troops, thanks and good hunting. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration, Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Um, I saw a story in Science News, and it had to do with uh, healthcare information, patient information, and uh, attempts to de-identify large patient data sets because of these privacy issues. Can you take us through what are we talking about here? Well, basically, there's always a concern when working with uh, medical data or other data collected about individuals that the data itself uh, will reveal information about PII of individuals or other sensitive information about people who participated in the study 
whether that's being released to the researchers or whether that's released to the general public in case uh, data from the, from that study is ever released. And so it was really nice to see here, actually, that uh, medical researchers are aware and, and taking great care to try to anonymize the data that they're working with and the data that they're publishing in order to prevent this kind of de-identification uh, of the individuals in the data set. And how do they go about doing that? Well, there are various ways you can do that. Um, a lot of different techniques have been developed over the years. The ones that they were looking at in the study uh, that you were talking about seem to be based on, on an idea called k-anonymization, where basically what you do is you modify certain data in the data set to ensure that there's always a, a large group of people sharing any given number of attributes. So that basically means that rather than uh, if an attacker got their hands on the data, they wouldn't be able to look at a row of a database, for example, and then uh, correlate that with a particular individual taking part in the study. Uh, more recently, people have looked at other techniques like differential privacy, which actually give more rigorous guarantees about what can be learned from individuals based on the data. So what's your take on the technique that they used in this example? Well, from what I could read about it, and this is only based on the news article, I, I wasn't actually able to get a copy of the paper itself. It looked like they had uh, used a technique based on k-anonymity and uh, some fuzzing, which involves changing some of the data values. And then they evaluated the effectiveness of that against a specific attack. Uh, and they showed that th that, that particular attack uh, was unsuccessful. And that's a good start, but uh, what worries me about that is that it leaves open the possibility that there are other attacks that the researchers didn't think about that would allow an attacker to learn information about individuals. And so what you'd really prefer is, uh, you know, rather than preventing one specific attack, you'd rather have a technique that would de-anonymize the data in such a way that it was secure against all possible attacks. And that's what something like differential privacy uh, would allow for. And, um, uh, you know, I hope going forward that they try to integrate those techniques into what they're doing as well. Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.